Hello, and welcome to this episode of Criminal Mischief, the Art and Science of Crime Fiction. I'm D.P. Lyle, your host. Today, I want to talk about evidence. Every crime story deals with evidence. That's what it's all about. You're sleuth, you're, whether it's a cop or a PI or, or, or your amateur sleuth, whoever it is, is trying to prove that something took place, uh, a murder, a robbery, uh, an assault, uh, a stalking, whatever, whatever your story is about. But they're always looking for evidence to prove that this took place and that a specific individual perpetrated the crime. That's what it's all about. So what is evidence? Well, evidence is anything, really. Um, but the heart and science of, of evidence and the heart and science of uh, forensic science, if you will, is what's called the Locard's Exchange Principle. And it's very important because without understanding this, you can't understand evidence. What it basically means, and Professor Locard was a cop and a scientist uh, in, in Lyon, France, uh, a century ago, and he came up with the idea that any time a person interfaces with another person, an object, or a place, evidence is exchanged. And that exchange of evidence is what ties them together. In other words, if there's a murder scene and someone is killed, the perpetrator may get blood on his clothing or his hands or his shoe bottoms or his socks or wherever. He may leave behind fingerprints and foot 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 uh, tracks. He may leave behind hair and fiber and skin cells and uh, saliva and whatever. And all of these things are evidence that he has exchanged with either the victim, the murder weapon, some other object, the location. And this exchange is the heart and soul of criminal investigations and particularly uh, forensic science. But this isn't a modern concept. I mean, Sherlock Holmes was aware of this. Uh, he discusses it in, in several of his stories that, that good evidence and, and clear reasoning will eliminate all the other choices. But one, um, in his, uh, I think it was a study in Scarlet, the first story is where he first talked about testing for blood. And that kind of predated uh, the actual testing. Um but Sherlock Holmes, in, in many ways, uh, uh, defined the, what evidence does. And, and in his words, in his words, and this comes from the adventure of the barrel coronet, he states, it is an old maximum of mine that when you have excluded the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. So if you look at this, what you're basically saying is that evidence eliminates, and that's what it does. It eliminates everyone else. And so we're going to talk about some aspects of evidence, and I want you to keep in mind the exchange principle and the fact that it's not used to point the finger at someone. It's used to eliminate everyone else. And as Sherlock said, what the last man standing is the truth. So we define, we define um, or divide uh, uh, 
evidence into direct and circumstantial. And you hear all that, oh, it's a circumstantial case. Trust me, you want a circumstantial case. You don't want a direct case. Because what's the difference? What is direct evidence? Direct evidence basically establishes a fact. This happened. You don't have to infer anything. You, there's no circumstances involved. If someone confesses to the crime, that is direct evidence. How much easier could it be? If someone witnesses the crime and says, this is the guy that did it, I saw him do it, that's direct evidence. Those are the two forms of direct evidence, eyewitnesses and confessions. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Well, not so fast. It has been discovered over the years with many, many studies that people confess to all kinds of things. Uh, and they don't have to be beaten and tortured and all those crazy things. People just confess to things. Some people do it by psychiatric things. Some people do it because they want attention. Some people do it because they're guilty about something else. Whatever. People have internal reasons for confessing to things, and they do it all the time. Eyewitnesses are notoriously wrong. The famous study of where a guy comes into the room of 60 people and fires a gun and runs out of the room. And then they ask everybody, you know, write down who you saw, what it was, what he was wearing. None of them are right. It was all over the place. They got different sex, different race, different size, different clothing, different everything. Why? Because it's usually an emotional event. Things happen very, very fast. Your memory then reconstructs all these things to fit your own internal narrative so that it, it fits with your experience, your knowledge, your biases, your prejudices, your beliefs, uh, your, your past history, things you've witnessed in the past, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things come into play in your memory of an event. So these two are not all that reliable. You know, Perry Mason moments don't happen all that often. And when they do, uh, you've got to look at them with a suspicious eye. Circumstantial evidence is more objective and is subject to less improbability. And the reason is, is that it is scientific for the most part, even though a lot of that's controversial now, but it is, it is more, more direct, if you will, than direct evidence. Why is it called circumstantial? Well, because the circumstances under which the evidence was present and found must be analyzed to determine if it really means what it says it means. So that's the circumstance. So, for instance, if you find someone's fingerprints at a murder scene, does that mean that they committed the murder? No. But what it does do is put them at the place of the murder at some point in time. Was it during the murder? Was it before? Was it after? Each one of these is a different story. But when you develop a suspect, they have to have an explanation, a logical explanation for the circumstances around which their prints ended up on the knife or on the kitchen counter where someone was murdered. Same way with blood and semen and DNA. And that's why the police will often come at it in an unusual angle. They will say, oh, do you know Mrs. Jones? No, never met her in my life. You ever been to her house? No, why would I be to her house? Well, then how come we found your fingerprints? How come we found your DNA? Can you explain that away? Riddle me this. Well, now the person has denied knowing or having a, a logical reason for being there. 
But let's say it's the kid down the block, the teenager who is suspected of the murder of Mrs. Jones. And they say, do you know Mrs. Jones? Sure, I know her. Uh, how do you know her? Well, she lives down there. She, you know, she's a nice lady, and, and I do errands for her. Really? What do you do? I go to the grocery store for her. So you've been in her house. Yeah, I've been in her house lots of times. She will always make cookies and tea cakes and stuff, and I'll sit there and have a, you know, a Diet Coke and, and a donut with her or whatever. And uh, so I've been in and out of her house lots of times. Well, now the fingerprints that are found there or the shoe prints or the hair and fiber don't mean so much. Because the circumstances around which that evidence was found are more innocent than if he had said, I've never been there, I don't know her, I've never been in her house. So direct and circumstantial evidence is one of the ways we look at evidence. And circumstantial evidence, because of DNA and fingerprinting and things like that, are, are, are critically important. The other way to look at evidence is that it either identifies or compares something. Now, identification is, is obviously critical. If, uh, if, a, if a white powder is found in a baggie in someone's pocket, is it sugar or Splenda? <laughs> is it uh, cocaine? Is it crystal meth? Is it baking powder? I mean, who knows? The point is, is you have to identify that substance. Now, someone in possession of, uh, of Splenda or, or sugar is not in trouble, but someone in possession of cocaine and meth is. So identifying, having the crime lab identify that substance changes the entire circumstance for that individual. If you find a bullet in a wall or in a victim and you can, uh, you can determine that, that it was a thirty-eight caliber, all right. Now you have identified the murder weapon as a 38 caliber pistol. This does not mean that the victim uh, the, that the that the suspect's pistol is the one that did it and we'll talk about that in a minute, but it means that you've eliminated all of the non-38 caliber weapons. So that's important identification. If you see a tire track or a shoe print and you can identify the brand and size and model number of the shoe or the tire, now you now you know what you're looking for. You're looking for a car with that type of tire or a person who owns that type of shoe because you have identified what left the evidence behind. So now you come to compare it. You compare that evidence that you found with something else. I mean, in the lab, they compare white powder to cocaine powder. You know, they know what it looks like under gas chromatography and mass spectroscopy, and they have other tests, simpler tests that can determine it. And so they determine, yes, you know, okay. So now they've compared it with a known standard, as it were. But let's say now you've got a tire track and you find a tire, uh, you find a car of the suspect, and the tire track is the same, and you compare the two and find out that they match. So evidence is identifying and then comparing. So this brings up the important concept of class versus individual characteristics. I talked about the 38 caliber pistol. Okay. So let's say a victim is shot twice with a 38 caliber in the chest and they're found dead and they go to autopsy and the coroner removes the, uh, the two bullets, and sure enough, he weighs them or looks at them or measures them, depending on how damaged they are, and he determines, yes, this is a thirty-eight caliber slug. Okay. 
what have we done? Remember, Sherlock said, you eliminate all the possibilities. We've eliminated all other weapons. It's not a 45. It's not an AK-47. It's not a shotgun. It is a 38 caliber weapon that fired the lethal bullets. So we've eliminated all of those others. Okay, fine. Now they look at the twist and stuff in the, uh, of the, the, the striations on the thing, and they can determine the, the twist and the size of the lands and grooves often. And this may determine the manufacturer. Is it a Smith & Wesson or a Ruger or whatever? And so because different manufacturers do things different ways. And so now you've eliminated a lot of the manufacturers. So now let's say you're looking now for a Smith & Wesson 38. Well, you've eliminated a whole ton of other weapons. So someone in possession of a Colt 45 is not a suspect, at least not using that weapon. So now let's say you find the suspect owns a 38 and now you test fire it. And now you test uh, under the comparison microscope, the bullets removed from the victim with the ones test fired from the gun and you find a match. Now you've taken it from Class evidence, Smith & Wesson 38, to specific or individual characteristics. That's not only was it fired by a Smith & Wesson 38, it was fired by this Smith & Wesson 38. And that takes it from class to individual. The same can be said for tire tracks and shoe prints. So you find the size and the manufacturer and the, and the grid or sole pattern, and you've got it down to, you know, Air Jordans or whatever. And then you have a suspect and they have one and okay, now you're looking for matches. And so, you know, they got the right size. They got the right manufacturer. They got the right model number. They got all of that stuff, but let's look at individual things. So they find that the pattern left at the crime scene, whether if it's a shoe print or a tire track and the pattern on the shoe or the tire of the suspect match because of wear patterns and damage patterns. Remember, let's take tires, for example. When you drive a tire, it wears down. You know that. You've got to replace them, you know, ever so many thousand miles. Um, and then they get nicks and cuts and stones come in and, and damage the tread. And, 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 it, and it, so it's individualized. Now, if if you find a tire track and you don't find the car for another six months, you're probably not going to be able to match it. But if you find it fairly quickly and you find that they do match, that the little nicks and cuts and grooves, now you've taken it from this manufacturer, this size, this model number of tire to this specific tire. So we've gone from class evidence to individual evidence. And lastly, in this category, let's look at blood. Someone leaves blood behind. Okay. It's a uh, type O blood. So oh, let's make it even better. It, it's, it, it's type AB blood. Now, only about 3% of people have AB blood. Okay. So what have you done by, by testing that blood? You've eliminated 97% of the planet. Only 3% are still remaining in the suspect pool because the blood type has changed that. Now, let's say it's RH negative. Okay, now you've eliminated it even further. All right, let's say it has some of the other markers in there, and now you've got it down to maybe 1% of the population. But that's about the best you can do with blood typing. So there's a if you find a suspect and that person has AB negative blood with these other markers, the PGMs and all that stuff, well, 
there's a one in a hundred chance, say, that that that's his blood. That's not good enough because there's many other people who have that. There's thousands of people that have that. Um, circumstances may dictate that it's very, very, very unlikely that 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 someone you know in in Ohio left this in Utah. But uh, who knows? Um, the point is, is that this evidence narrows it, but it doesn't completely eliminate. So what do you bring in? You bring in DNA. Now you do the DNA profile and you find that it matches. Now what have you done? You've eliminated all the people with other blood types other than AB negative and PGM markers. And so you've narrowed it to a certain class. And now you've plucked an individual out of that class and individualized it. And now you know that this is the person who left the blood sample at the crime scene. That That's the circumstances again. Is there an innocent explanation for this? Did the boy down the street come in and, you know, cut his finger on a, on a knife or something while he was opening a package for her uh, and drip a drop of blood on the thing? Or did he get injured while he was doing the murder? Again, we're back to circumstantial evidence. The other thing evidence can do is it can be reconstructive and associative. So let's look at those. What do I mean by reconstructive? Well, they come in and, and, and reconstruct the crime scene, and they look at evidence. So let's say there's a shattered window. And so they're saying, okay, this is how the guy broke into the house. And then there's a, a door standing open. Okay, this is how he escaped. Um, okay, fine. That's good evidence. Now, why? Because you look along not only at the, the, the focal point of the crime, you know, the dresser that was all the drawers were opened up and all the jewelry was taken or the body that was, was laying in the bathroom floor, or the kitchen floor or wherever. Those are the focal points of the crime. So you look for evidence around that, of course, but you also look along the entry and the escape routes. And so you, you have to reconstruct the scene that way. Okay. What if the window was broken on the inside and not the outside? Well, could that be the person's escape route? why would someone break a window and jump out if they were already in the house and the door was open? Uh, even if it was a front door and there was traffic going on, there's always a back door you could go out. So why would they break a window and jump through a window unless they were spooked or something happened? I mean, it's possible. But the point is, is now it looks more like a staged crime scene as you reconstruct it. Blood spatter patterns are, are critically important for this because it gives the location of the individual when the blood was spilled, whether if it's dripping or gushing or spurting or splattering or whatever it is. And all of this is uh, discussed in great detail in both Forensics for Dummies and How Done It Forensics If you want, to, with diagrams and everything if you want to look more into blood spatter. And there's a lot of stuff online, but it's a fascinating field. But let's say that you take all the droplets of a blood spatter. Someone is bludgeoned to death in their living room. And you look at the blood blood spatter on the carpet, on the curtains, on the sofa, on the coffee table, on the wall. Well, from that, from the shapes of these drops, I won't get too deep in the woods here, you can determine the trajectory of the blood bit that made that spot. And if you take all of those and bring them back, you get a focal point. You get a focal point. So now let's say you've arrested a suspect and he says, whoa, dude, you know, I was protecting myself. The guy was coming after me. Sure, I broke into his house, but I didn't mean to kill him, but he attacked me. Well, if you find the guy's six feet tall and you find that the focal point of the blood is about six feet off the ground, 
Mm, it's possible. Now, you'd look at other things, the angle of the blows, where the blows took place, whether there are any defensive wounds on the hands, et cetera, et cetera. But the blood spatter would say, okay, you know, that fits what you're telling us. But what if the focal point was only two and a half, three feet off the ground? Well, wouldn't that mean the guy was on his knees or hands and knees? And people on their hands and knees aren't usually a threat. So now it takes on a whole different circumstance. So with these types of reconstructions, by taking the evidence, then they can determine what happened, points of entry, points of exit, what went on, where everybody was, where the blood was spilled, where this, how, how, how. They can find footprints either before or after, some that don't have blood, some that do have blood, on, and they can determine where the perpetrator went coming in and leaving after the murder, etc. So all of this can reconstruct the crime scene and also help set up uh, whether if it was staged or not. Associative evidence we've kind of already talked about, but this is where you take the fingerprints and shoe prints and hair and fiber and all this kind of stuff, and you try to associate that found at the crime scene with a particular suspect. And we've already talked about the, you know, the class evidence and the individualizing and all of that kind of stuff. And all that comes into play when you're trying to, um, trying to uh, determine if this is a viable suspect to have committed this crime. Then all this evidence has to be brought together by the prosecutors and the, and, and the defense people have to refute all of it and they have to go to war in the courtroom. Now, one last concept is that of linkage, and um, linkage is important because linkage will link. The evidence can link a person to a crime scene. So if they find a footprint or a fingerprint or DNA or, 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 or whatever that can be tied back to this individual, you have linked them to the crime scene. And again, the kid down the street denies he's ever been there. Well, sorry, Jack, we found your blood. We found your fingerprints. Uh, you've been there. And we know that you want to change your story. But then if he has an innocent thing, he's linked to it, but he's linked to it in an innocent fashion. So linkage is important. This is what uh, FBI profiling and all that is a lot about. And it's what the, the National Crime Center is all about because certain elements of crimes are plugged into this. And let's say crimes committed around the country are similar. They have a similar signature. They have similar evidence. They have a person of a certain size driving a certain type of car, wearing a certain size shoe, and they've committed similar murders that have a, a similar uh, M.O., if you will. They were done against similar victims in a similar manner. Well, now you can link these crimes together or at least begin to link these crimes together, and that helps uh, that helps solve cases far and wide. Uh, if you haven't watched the series Mindhunter, it's on right now, do, because it's all about the development of uh, what was originally the Behavioral Science Unit at the FBI. Uh, and it's fantastic because this is all part of it, linking crimes and understanding the type of person that will do this and trying to solve crimes that are spread far and wide. So at the end of the day, and there will be notes on this, as there always is, on my website and on my blog, so you can read them. You can also pick up a copy of How Done It Forensics or Forensics for Dummies, and all of this is covered in there in more detail. But at the end of the day, evidence is the heart and soul of forensic science. It is the heart and soul of crime investigations. It is absolutely evidence for your stories because your sleuth is trying to gather evidence that will track down the bad guy or eliminate all the other suspects until the bad guy is the one left standing.
So I hope this has helped and I hope you can use this in your stories. Um, and I hope when you start thinking about how am I going to plot this, think about what evidence means, how it's used, how it's used to eliminate class versus individual, direct versus circumstantial, reconstructive versus uh, associative, ident identification versus comparison. Look at all of these aspects and see how can I more cleverly plot my story. So until next time, this has been D.P. Lyle, and I'll see you on the next episode of Criminal Mischief, the Art and Science of Crime Fiction. Thanks.